All right, welcome to the Knowles 24-7 podcast. I'm Brendan Sinone. Uh, we're going to do kind of a combination podcast today. Uh, joining me currently is Chris Nee and Bob Ferranti. Uh, and then a little bit later, we will have Josh Newberg in to talk recruiting. Uh, so we're going to kind of do a little bit of football talk, a little bit of recruiting talk, because it's May and, and there's not a ton to talk about uh, for both sides. But enough combined, I think we can put together a pretty interesting podcast because there's a little bit going on here with uh, ACC spring meetings, uh, some recruiting stuff with with some pretty big visits. So we'll have enough to kind of keep you guys uh, keep you guys hooked and in, in talking about football. I know you got to get your football fixed. So before we get into that, I have the uh, the two uh, the two fathers and, and married men at the Knowles twenty four seven website. Both Josh and myself are are not fathers and, and not married. And I'm not sure what Josh's status is if anyone's interested. But I am in a relationship and we are planning a wedding. Um, what advice would you guys have, both Chris and Bob here, for, for someone that's going going through this right now? Because it's turning to be a, a, a pain in the ass, and we're just getting started on this. Yes, honey, that's a great idea. And then just move on and go drink a beer. I, the beer drinking part's definitely down. I'm having a hard time with the yes, honey, but that may be more my issue. Bob, what would, what would your advice be? You're a little bit more um, nicer than Chris, I guess, would be the, the word I'm looking for. Nice. I think you should uh, trust the process and uh, and make sure you have plenty of patience and and pray. But when in doubt, uh, alcohol, alcohol, and alcohol. All right. So a lot of a lot of alcohol. Thanks, guys. You're really fueling my uh, my budding alcoholism. So I appreciate uh, the encouragement there. So let's uh, let's get to football. And, and the segue there would be Bob talking about the process. Uh, we did get to talk to Jimbo Fisher at the ACC spring meetings in Amelia Island uh, this past week, and and. Jimbo, you know, was, uh, I don't know, he seemed like he was in a fine mood and, and kind of ready for uh, to start game planning for Alabama, which we'll kind of get into in a little bit. But let's talk, uh, Bob, real quick, the ACC spring meetings. Not a whole lot going on, but but from the perspective of the coaches, uh, they had a couple of things they were really up in arms about, including Jimbo, including Mark Rick from Miami. Uh, you were there with me, Bob. What were some things that you kind of noticed and saw from the coaches that, that kind of impact the way you know, they do things with recruiting? Uh, what were the things that they were talking about this week? I think it's, it's rare to see college coaches across the board have a consensus or, or be unanimous in an opinion. And we kind of saw a little bit of that with two really key issues, one being the December early signing period. I think uh, Coach Fisher and Coach Rick really illustrated that there are some there are some serious issues with that, and a lot of discussions weren't weren't made about how the calendar is going to shape up for coaches as far as how they're going to have so many official visits through the spring, April, May, and June. You know, Mark Rick really illustrating that that's a that's a big weight on coaches, assistants, support staff, um, compliance, academic support, and such. I don't sense that anybody is really happy about it. They feel like they're all in the same boat together for whatever that's worth. So they're, they're kind of going to go through it together. But I did get the feeling that the ACC coaches want to uh, take that up with, with the NCAA and see if they can get out of that. If not, you know, make it a one-year deal maybe where they can get out of it. The other thing that was really interesting is the freshman rule. You know, having a freshman be able to play up to four games at any point in the season – um, you know, Davos Swinney mentioning that they played two 15-game seasons now, back-to-back. He would he would like to have the ability to, you know, play a freshman late in the year when a guy isn't ready in September, but but he is in November, and you've got those injuries that mount up throughout the year. You know, he'd like to be able to utilize the full roster. I think everybody everybody in the room, it sounds like, was was unanimous in the opinion that it would be great to uh, to have freshmen play up to four games and still retain, uh, you know, re- retain your eligibility for the next year. So um, some interesting things coming there. It wasn't a spring meetings with, with you know, big storylines, but but just some some interesting kind of big picture items. It, it was cool to see the coaches kind of all in agreement with with two different you know categories there. Um, you don't see that very often. A lot of alpha dogs and a lot of opinionated guys in one room. So uh, the fact that they were all kind of on the same page there, I think, speaks to. To one that the the you know the redshirt rule that you discussed, Bob, actually you know, makes sense. So for basically like what you can do, and, and I'll try to describe it the best way, but you could um, you know play four games you know as your your rookie season, your first year there on campus, and that that basically isn't a um, 
a mark against you. Um, so DeAndre Francois could have could have played, you know, in the in the Peach Bowl yesterday when when Sean McGuire went down in 2015. You know, he hadn't played all season. Francois could have come in, uh, played that game uh, instead of forcing you know McGuire to play on the on the broken ankle or foot or putting in JJ Cosentino or something. And and Francois doesn't lose a year of eligibility. It's kind of kind of an example of how that works. Did I get that correct, Bob? That's that's basically you know an example of, of how that would be beneficial, right? Yeah, it's a good example. I think a couple of other coaches mentioned uh, you know the Ole Miss quarterback Shea Patterson. He played what the last three regular season games. They weren't uh, bowl eligible, so he didn't even get a bowl game out of it. Um, so that's there are some couple of examples out there where it could really help for the development of freshmen. Uh, you know, even Dabo is kind of mentioning why not get a couple of guys here and there and on special teams, just just getting a little bit of experience. It uh, it can only really help the the student athlete was was the perspective of a lot of coaches. And circling back to the the recruiting rule and, and the way the calendar shifts, you know, you have the early signing day in period, in, uh, the early signing period in what in December now for three days, um, and then you got official visits that juniors can take uh, over the spring, and it's just kind of kind of so you have them months ahead of time taking an official visit possibly before they can maybe make a decision. Uh, Chris, you, you know, you weren't there at Amelia Island, but yours, you know, you talk to assistants all the time. You have a pretty good pulse on. Uh, what the coaching community feels about certain things, just from people you've talked to, can you get a sense of frustration? I mean, we heard the head coaches, they're frustrated. Our assistants kind of worried about, you know, being you know overworked even more than they are now with the way the recruiting calendar kind of stretches out. Yeah. They all feel like they don't have enough time to accomplish what they want to accomplish. Plus most of them are family men. You know, most young assistants are relatively newly married, usually have small ones. You know, they're the younger types. They're 30, 40-year-old men for the most part. Obviously, there's some assistants that are more 50s, 60s, 70s. But, uh, yeah, those guys are just kind of – I think they're tired of it all. The biggest issue I've heard with all of the new legislation is that for certain things to be approved that people wanted, like the red shirt rule or the 10th assistant, they had to also approve things like early signing period, which most don't like the date of December. Most would prefer earlier. I know Jimbo's been pretty staunch about needing it to be about August, which I largely agree with. It should probably be earlier like that if you're going to do it. Um, there's also the issue of two-a-days, which hasn't really been talked about, but they eliminated two-a-day practices, so it's kind of changed the calendar for some schools, and most of them aren't sure how they're going to handle it with preseason practice, You know, whether they start earlier, have less practices. They're not sure how they're going to go about that. So the issue is they should have done a lot of one-off legislation where they voted on individual ideas instead of turning this into a big old bill with a lot of pork rolled in that you had to accept. It's a bad thing. I think uh, we're going to see a lot of changes in the next two to three years where certain parts of this legislation get rolled back or altered, and it's all kind of for naught. Like, you know, to get one or two good things, the redshirt rule, the 10th assistant, we've accepted three, four, five things that everybody seemingly hates. In the coaching community, and it, it just it doesn't make sense. I think the thing that, that is the most confounding is the early signing period. Like you said, Chris, if you're gonna do it, that, that's fine. Move it, move it up to August. I know, that, like Mark Rick didn't want the the calendar getting messed up at all. Jimbo does, you know, is in favor of being earlier. But why you move it up two and a half months? It doesn't seem to make much sense. It doesn't make a huge difference at that point, right? Yeah, and it, say you've got some kid who's a moron. You know, probably not going to qualify at the end of the whole process. He wants to take officials, and you know, he's able to from a clearinghouse standpoint. Wants to take officials in the sun or the spring into the summer, and then sign in August. But this kid's not going to qualify. That's a huge waste of time for coaching staffs. They need to, if they're going to do this, make it where it's beneficial for the student athlete to be at a certain benchmark, where it makes sense for the school to invest their time and resources into trying to land this kid early. I think it's a, a short thought process that was poorly done. I don't I don't think they sat down and truly thought, if we're going to alter the recruiting landscape, recruiting timelines, then we need to step back and alter it further back. It's not solely a signing period. It's a process of leading up to that signing period. I don't really feel like they thought out the whole process. And I get why coaches are pissed off about it. They don't have a lot of time as is. It's going to result in new issues. They're going to be investing a lot of time in June and July outside of their camps where they have to work and be on campus. They want to take family vacations. They need a little time to recharge the batteries. You know, I, I, I think it was poorly done. I think they needed to create a basically like a 60-day window 
that was beneficial to guys who had earned the right to be an early signee from an academic standpoint and allow it to all occur in there and, you know, make it where schools had to deal with that. But that would still give them a window maybe on the front or the back end to have a few weeks where there was nothing, like nothing could be done. You couldn't have contact with kids. They can't be on your campus. You can't go see them. You can't even have electronic communication. Literally like a two-week non-existent recruiting period where beyond sending a kid a piece of mail in the mail, you can't contact them. Make it where everybody kind of takes a minute to step back and figure out what the hell is going on. And it looks like, yo, know, the ACC is going to try to get some of this pushback, and at least that's what they're going to recommend. I'm not sure how successful it's going to be. Mark Rick kind of seemed to imply that he thought maybe that they would have a chance of doing that. Jimbo Fisher said they're just going to have to maybe kind of, you know, live with it for the next couple of years. So I guess we'll we'll see where that's where that's going coming up here. Uh, transitioning now, let's talk a little bit about some Florida State stuff we have on the docket. Uh, it's May, so you know the content isn't coming in as fast and furious as usual, but I feel like we actually have kind of put up a lot of stuff in in recent weeks that are kind of kind of fun and interesting. And I think Bob right now is in the middle of a of a fun feature kind of going through the list of the the best wins in the Jimbo Fisher era and and the the worst losses um and he just produced the the best wins the other day bob maybe the the thought process of i think number one was pretty easy right for for best win that's florida state beating auburn in the the national championship game for the 2013 season um what was number two and kind of how did you manage to shake shake out number two on the list you know, I kind of looked at what, what was significant, what was meaningful for the program, and, and a lot of those were rivalry games. So the list is obviously going to be loaded with uh, with games against Miami and Clemson and, and Florida. You know, number two was uh, was really a big night for, for Florida State at Clemson in 2013. That's kind of when they, they shook off those Death Valley demons and, and really jumped on Clemson from the start. It wasn't even... Uh, wasn't even close after what halftime. I think I, I think you kind of knew where it was going the rest of the way, and uh, and that was kind of a fun night from the from the Florida State perspective. You kind of see the program was taking that next step and winning a, a top five showdown quite handedly on the road. So um, it, it was a fun list to put together. I again I leaned on the rivalry games pretty hard. I think um, I think I even noted you know Jimbo's got what seventy seven wins now in, in seven seasons so it's it's tough to narrow it down to 10 but but a fun project and I, I think uh, I hope the fans have enjoyed it I remember that that 13 game up in Clemson that was you know my first uh trip up to Death Valley and uh what stood out to me was was not just how Florida State dominated I mean I think that was you they had was it the Maryland game was that the week before um, where they, you know, Maryland came in ranked and, and Florida State just, just tore them apart in Doak. The fact yeah, that they took. That's the game where Jacoby killed the quarterback and uh, Randy Edsall got all pissy about it. Yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, Jacoby was asked about hurting him. And Jacoby's one of the nicest guys like that, that I've covered. And I always thought he was really fun and genuine to talk to. And, and he asked, was asked about, you know, the quarterback basically kind of ending his season, I think, with the, with the foot injury. And Jacoby, who had his career really just. Uh, taken off off the rails with with a foot injury, ankle injury, um, after being a really highly touted recruit, kind of just shrugged his shoulders and like that's football. That's kind of was my eye opening experience of of football being kind of not even just the business, but but you know that these injuries or guys are kind of just going through it and um, not to say that it wasn't remorse that he felt bad about it, but just kind of that's that's the way it goes. Um, but yeah, so Florida State takes that show on the road to to Clemson and how quiet. Death Valley got uh, when Florida State went up. The, the fact it was this this loud, just crazy atmosphere. I'd never seen anything quite like it, and, and it went to stunned silence so, so quickly. Um, that was special, and I think that's kind of when at least I realized that this team was was really, really going to be good, and I think that was kind of the moment they realized that they were going to be elite and they were going to kind of to waltz their way, and I, I think that was why that was the number two. I think that was a good choice, Bob. I, I like that. Were you guys there for, for the 2013 game? Yeah, what like what stood out to you? Like, there's so many different moments. What stood out to you for that for that Clemson game, the one that we have number two on the list, Chris? I've been to Clemson, I think, about a dozen times now in my life, and that place is awesome. They're loud, they're into it, they do a great job of anticipating like when they need to get crowd pumped and the crowd gets into it. And you know, when that game went off the reels very quickly for them, 
it was dead silent. And that press box is kind of like an old school lunchroom. Mm-hmm. It's the best way I can describe it. <laughs> Very low roof, tiled roof. So when they're stomping and they're going, you hear it. it's kind of above you, it's in front of you, you hear the noise. That thing was quiet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop in that place. So that was unique. I had never been in there when it had reached that kind of point in a game. And truthfully, the thing is, FSU bushwhacked them. I mean, yep. they, LaMarcus Joyner running back with the arms wide open. I mean, uh, Mario Edwards Jr. reaction on the play, just the way they played. It was like everything clicked. And the crazy thing about that is three weeks three weeks prior, two games prior, was the Boston College game yep. at Boston College. I was also there for that one. And that was sort of a shootout and like a, holy shit, is this defense really not very good kind of game? Like, there were some concerns. You know, I gave up 34 points to a BC team that wasn't exactly world beaters. They were implementing a new defense. I remember a lot of discussion of, you know, I don't know if Jeremy Pruitt's the right guy, yada, yada, yada. And then you get Clemson, and everything clicks. And then from that point on, they never gave up more than 17 points in a game until the national championship game. I mean, they just they ransacked people, and that was kind of the jump-off point for them. I think that's when they realized, hey, if we do what they're telling us to do with the amount of talent on this roster, we can ransack our opponents. And Florida State also kind of going back to that Boston College game after them, and that's like you said that the light kind of clicked, but for the defense – that's when they kind of stopped trying to be Alabama, too, I feel like. They were trying to implement, you know, put in their bigger players. Like, uh, they had Dan Hicks, you know, as an edge guy. They had uh, Christian Jones standing up at linebacker. They just said, screw it. We're going to go with our best 11. We're going to go with the fastest guys, the best athletes. They moved Christian Jones down to, like, that defensive end hybrid kind of buck roll. Yeah. Um, you know, they went nickel most of the time, so they put Joyner in the slot. And, you know, part of that was matchups. But as soon as they did that, that's when stuff, stuff clicked and changed for them. Yeah, and going back to Bob's list, the – the ones that stood out to me beyond the national championship in that Clemson game is probably Miami and Florida 2010 because Jimbo kind of made a you know, statement with those two. I think it was what? It was 45-17 at Miami, if I remember correctly, and then at home against UF it was 31-7, roughly, yeah. something like that. I think those were the two. It wasn't like they just won. They beat the hell out of their in-state opponents and, you know, you win the state, you win a lot of recruits. That kind of set the, the you know, terms that created the 2012 success. Bob, was there a, uh, any one game that you struggled with that you left off that you kind of were like, man, I, re- I really wish we had 11 spots, or do you feel pretty good about the, the, final, the final 10? I guess were there any that you were kind of struggling with at the end there? Yeah, there were definitely a few. Um, I mean, now that you guys mentioned it, you know, 2013 BC was was really significant in a lot of respects. Um, there were a few that, you know, I think some people commented on the board, you know, they were maybe a little bit lower than they expected. Um, but I, I'm kind of, I keep coming back to 2010 too, like Chris mentioned, you know, it was a year where you win in dominating fashion at Miami. You trounce Florida at home and that ends a six-game losing streak, and then you finish it off with uh, with a big bowl win over South Carolina and Steve Spurrier, and that was a game where it felt like Florida State was playing Steve Spurrier and not so much South Carolina at times because of the, the, the fan emotion. But, yeah, it's it's tough to narrow down 77 to, to 10, 10 wins, but uh, I think it was it was a fun list. All right, so now let's go to the the other the other side of that coin, and we haven't published it yet, and I think we're still kind of you know Bob's still hammering out the details, and it's kind of a it's not really collaborative because it is Bob's list, but you know Chris and I will kind of throw in our, our thoughts on it. Um, so I don't think us saying what our individual you know worst loss in the FSU era is kind of ruins the list unless we all kind of pick the same, and I haven't you know planned ahead to talk about this, but let's go down the line here. What what do you think the worst loss for, for Florida State in, in the Jimbo Fisher era is? Bob, we'll start, start with you. Like, if you just could pick just your list, it wasn't collaborative, what would you say definitively as, as one? I think just the significance of the game against Oregon in the playoff. You know, it was a, it was a national semifinal, and it was a game that in the second half they, they could do nothing right. It was just turn out, turnover after turnover. And you know the, the the first half was was actually quite close. I think you know, of course, it had some opportunities. There was a really strange non-call in the holding where I think Demarcus Walker lost half his jersey. But um, but Oregon, you know, just the way that they pulled away, and it was kind of a game going in where I felt like Florida State should win and should 
you know, move on to the championships. That's that's why it's number one on my list. Chris, what would be uh, be your number one? I'd go with Louisville last year because the Oregon game, while they lost, they were in position to do some things in that game. It just kind of didn't go their way. It got ugly, but it wasn't as ugly as the score would say. Louisville was uglier than the score would say. They got their ass kicked at Louisville. They, uh, truthfully, in my opinion, quit in the second half, and they couldn't do a damn thing right. So out of every game I think of over the last you know, seven years, Nothing stands out like that game to me. I, I just thought that was the worst performance I've seen FSU put on a football field since at least the Wake Forest shutout. And truthfully, I thought it was worse because the team was far more talented than that team that got beat up by Wake years ago. I I agree with Chris. I mean, I think the, I think that's one. You know, you could have a one A and one B with the Oregon loss and, and Louisville, but uh, being at at both in person, I thought the the Louisville game was far more damning, uh, an indictment of where Florida State was as a team at that point, and as far as program defining, I understand it was a bigger stage and more at stake for for Oregon. Um, but like you kind of hinted at, Bob, like yeah, Florida State wasn't necessarily out outmanned entirely against Oregon. Um, you know, they had that first half where they belonged on the field with them, and that was just kind of. You know, all of Florida State's demons from that year, you know, they were playing with fire with the turnovers, with the slow starts, with the up-and-down performance on defense, kind of came back, and, and this crescendo kind of took Florida State out and one fell swoop or just, you know, snowballed. Uh, Louisville, like Chris said, just, man, it, it just got worse and, and worse as the game went on, and then Florida State couldn't do anything to stop Louisville. Um, and I just remember so vividly you know, last year being there, watching in the press box. I forget if they caught it on TV or not. But uh, it was after a timeout, uh, and Louisville was already well ahead, and, and the Louisville offensive line just went up uh, coming out of the timeout to the Florida State defense while Florida State was still kind of finishing things up in their huddle and just started kind of jumping around and, and instigating them and, and you know talking trash to them. And Florida State players did absolutely nothing to stop it. It was actually Odell Hagens that had to go over and say something to the Louisville players, which of, <laughs> of course it would be Odell that would that would actually uh, you know that would feel the, the need to do that because he's that kind of guy. But I think that was the indictment is that the defense at that time had no confidence, uh, didn't have the guys that that would just kind of step up. And that was the first game without Derwin uh, James. It just was so glaring about about how how off that defense was and how how soft they were at that point in the season. Um, and then obviously you lose that game, uh, sets up, you know, kind of the, the magnifies the UNC loss two weeks later and puts you out of, uh, title contention. So yeah, that would, that would have been my worst, um, loss in the Jimbo era and kind of looking at the list that we have together that Bob put, like, there's actually a lot of, you know, bad, bad, there's not a lot of losses in the Jimbo era, but some of those are, are pretty bad, right, Bob? It's just, just crazy inexplicable losses, uh, kind of, kind of tossed around in there. Yeah, it's really a weird list looking back through the years. Um, obviously, Raleigh in 2012, uh, just how you lose a game where you're ahead 16-zip. Um, of course, Georgia Tech in 2015 with the uh, all those red zone mistakes. I think we're all going to remember the uh, the blocked field goal attempt and, and the return, but my goodness, I mean, Travis Rudolph, if he, if he tiptoes his, his feet in, he gets a touchdown. Um, there was the end zone interception. There was so many mistakes there. I think you know, the common theme through a lot of these, um, I would say in the middle and later down the list, is, is Florida State really had opportunities to win these games. And you know, maybe that's that's the way sports is in general, but, but to have those chances there, to be knocking on the door and in position to, to put seven points on the board and Instead, you have a, a critical turnover or a field goal, and, and you're just settling for fewer points. So that's something that's kind of a, a common theme throughout the uh, the ten you know most difficult losses of the Fisher era. Yeah, a couple games that I thought of, you know, when that list got thrown at me was 2012 UF in Tallahassee. FSU commits five turnovers, basically hand delivers themselves a 37-20 loss. And that 2011 Virginia game where they gave up a touchdown with just over a minute left and then Dustin missed a kick as time was expiring. Those two losses to me were like, why the hell can this team not get over the hump kind of losses? Like, I remember I I didn't work the 2011 game. It's one of the few times in the last 17 years I didn't have to work a game. And I actually believe I was in the parking lot with, like, Carter, who's my six-year-old now, but at that point was about one. And I was waiting for my wife to come out of the game for us to leave. And fans were walking by, essentially grumbling, you know, Jimbo's not the guy. We just lost to Virginia. That's four losses this year after that Virginia game. And it's so funny thinking about that, you know, a couple years later after a national title that, you know, it wasn't the case. But 
that was a deflating loss because that wasn't a very good Virginia team. And in reality, it wasn't a very good FSU team, but they should have been a 10-win FSU team. And, you know, they squandered that opportunity. And that 2012 UF, because that's a lone blemish with UF and Jimbo's tenure. Mm-hmm. And it was just a game that FSU basically handed over on a golden platter. And just some weird circumstances with that game with EJ Manuel. And I think he had, you know, he saw his mom for the first time and she was going through some things. It was just, just that was a weird, there's a lot of these weird circumstances around the Florida State losses that are going to be, probably end up on this list. I mean, even like the UNC game this past year was just a lot of heartbreak. Uh, the Georgia Tech game from 2015 with the blocked field goal. So a lot of like little special teams blunders and, and those weird, you know, kind of things. I, I just think, I do think it kind of speaks to Florida State's consistency and like ability to win. You know, big games, the fact that these these losses, so many of them, except for like a couple, are just these narrow heartbreakers, at least shows, you know, that, that the talent level that Florida State is. There's not a whole lot of blowouts or anything like that that we're talking about here. It's all kind of limited to mostly just a couple head-scratching performances, um, along with some just some bad luck, which happens over a, a certain period of time. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing with their losses is, for the most part, they've done a good job of learning from them. Mm-hmm. Um, that Florida loss, they got their ass kicked in the fourth quarter. They got outscored 24 to nothing till the last play of the fourth quarter. That's when EJ scrambled for a touchdown as time expired. So, you know, they've learned to close out games better than that over their time. That Virginia game, they've learned not to put themselves in a position a majority of the time where it comes down to that final play of a field goal, you know. So I, th- I think it's a matter of – the thing we always forget with Jimbo is he was learning on the job how to be a head coach early in his career. So I think some of those losses – can point to learning and understanding game management all facets a little better as you get more games under your belt. No, I I, I agree. Um, all right, one last thing here before we uh, we we pivot to uh, recruiting. Uh, we got to hear uh, kind of a, a different voice talk about Cam Akers and talk about recruiting in general, and that was Tim Brewster, uh, Florida State's recruiting coordinator and tight ends coach. And you know, for those of you who follow him on Twitter, you know the, the most vocal uh, Florida State coach on on social media by far. Uh, he was on a radio station, the Out of Bounds uh, show in Mississippi. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, like we don't get to talk to Florida State assistants during the season outside of a couple select ones for bowl games and a couple select ones for you know, media day. That's Jimbo's policy for whatever reason. He's kind of you know deemed that as, as you know keeping away distractions or you know having one you know solitary voice, whatever. But it was cool to hear Tim Brewster talk about Cam Akers. Um, I'm not sure how much you guys got to see of, of what we kind of summarized or listened to it. Um, what did you, what takeaways that you were able to kind of glean from from what Brewster had to say about about Acres? Yeah, it was interesting to hear Tim Brewster talking about Cam Acres. He's definitely a guy who's going to help right away. I thought it was interesting that the uh, the guys on the radio show asked if he was going to redshirt or not, and obviously Cam Acres is not the kind of guy you're going to redshirt. He's going to help right away. So, um, but interesting just to hear, you know, Brewster's perspective. He's not the position coach, but he's a guy who's on the practice field every day. And he's, he can kind of see what the, the kind of talent is that Cam Akers has. He, he knows what, what Cam can do. And, you know, also good to hear another perspective that, you know, Cam has made the transition very well from high school senior to college freshman. And, you know, putting behind that, that necessity of him playing quarterback for his high school team. He's, he's, you know, starting to blossom really well in the offense as a running back. So it, it's, it's always kind of good to get that perspective from Brewster. If you guys hearing a little bit of background noise there, it's uh it's the one and only Josh Newberg has joined us. Hi, Josh. Hi. He's, he's, uh, he's going to join us for some recruiting stuff in a second here. Uh, Chris, what were your thoughts on, on Bruce comments about, about acres, anything there different than you've heard or just telling uh, specifically? No, I felt like he channeled his inner getting green. God rest his soul. If, you know, he is who we thought that he were type of thing. <laughs> a little, he was, a, he was yeah. a little happier about it than Denny was at the time, though. He, yeah, I mean, Cam's a guy who's kind of been built up to these monstrous proportions, but I think he's going to truly live up to it. And I think Brew's a guy who's a big believer in the kids he recruits, both from an emotional and a physical standpoint. You know, he, he believes that he finds great talent, and when he lands that great talent, you know, he believes in it. And I think with Cam, he's giving him every reason to believe in it. I think that's all he heard. I think his his vocal tones and the way he spoke on him was genuine, that he truly believes he has the ability to be, you know, a major scoreboard changer, great player, huge impact player, and out of the gate can be really good for them. 
the thing that kind of like what I try to weigh, and we only can see so much of a player, um, you know, limited practices and portions of practice to see, and then the spring game, it's tough to kind of evaluate you know, what what exactly someone can be. But when you're hearing the same things over and over again from different people about a player, and you're seeing the way, you know, what they say is kind of translating over to the field, whether it's Cam Akers, how he performed in the spring game, or people talking about him as a teammate and actually kind of seeing him interact with the teammates and that guys are gravitating towards him and they actually legitimately like him. Uh, the fact that Brew kind of said everything that we've already heard and kind of confirms it just kind of, I, mean, I hate, I feel like we're really putting this kid in a position where we're overhyping him, but but it seems like everything we're hearing about is legitimate so far. And, and just, I think that's why there's an expectation that, you know, you know, Brewster met. You know, Brewster mentioned Dalvin Cook and how you know Florida State is looking to you know use Cam Akers eventually in kind of a similar capacity as it used Dalvin Cook, the school's all-time leading rusher. Obviously, those are big expectations, and I hate to kind of compare the two right away, but it does seem like there's some legitimacy to the fact that you know Dalvin was really good as a freshman once he got the field, and it looks like you know the same things are kind of expected for for Cam Akers. Am, am I? You know, over the top there and thinking that he's going to be that guy as as a freshman because I'm trying to trying to pump the brakes, but just keep feeling more and more the more we hear about him that there's legitimacy to to him being a plug and play player like a true uh, instant impact kind of guy. Uh, I think it's entirely fair. I don't know if it happens out of game against Alabama, but I think by the back half of the season you see him essentially become the primary back. I don't I don't think Patrick's going away. I think there's other guys in that backfield who can help, who can contribute, but I think Cam is a guy. I I think so too. All right. Well, with that, we'll uh, we'll cut Bob loose. Um, and thank you for <laughs> thank you for joining us, Bobo. We appreciate it. And we'll uh, we'll we'll pivot to uh, to recruiting now. All right, you guys. Take care. Bye. Fake newsberg. What's happening? Oh, I'm here for it. Hold on. Let me uh, put my headphones in. How are y'all doing? <laughs> We're doing fantastic. Um, Living a dream. Yep, yep. Big time stuff happening here. Do you guys yeah. want? Do you guys want to start with? Um, do you guys want to start with uh, one, Mister Tahada Mitchell, or do you want to just take some questions first? How do you guys want to go about the recruiting portion of this? Let's jump right into the questions. We're here for people. All right, let's pull up. Up, Josh, you started a nice little thread. I kind of got tagged into it, and I don't even know yeah, what was happening. Yeah, people didn't follow my directions. That's kind of par for the course. You're yelling at Karen Key Largo over something. Um, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I mean, on the, yeah, <laughs> I'm always yelling at her over something. Um, I, I said, ask, you know, submit your questions in this thread, and I said, let's get some good recruiting questions this uh-huh. week, and... People didn't follow directions because they're not good. They're not good. Well, then I guess we're not here for the people. Let's. I'll, First I'll go th- question is how's the 2018 board looking? It looks good. Next question: <laughs> How many 2019 targets commit this summer? I don't know, four or five probably. Next question, and that's all we got. Are you okay, Chris, with uh, Josh just berating our customers like that? Or is this? Is this... I, I like that Josh came in here as the angry one today. Usually, I'm that guy, but I've had two cups of coffee today, so I'm actually in a good place. And Josh is just pissy this morning, so it's kind of fun. It's like role reversal, except for the skinny version of me. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I've been a little off since Jalen Waddle's top twelve. Why? Yeah, any time we get a top double digit, it's just kind of uh-huh. like, why the hell do I mean, we do he this? He said he's going to break Twitter with this announcement, and I knew, I mean, me and Chris knew it wasn't going to be anything more than a top five, you know? Um, more likely a top ten is what we, we had thought, and we're talking about a slot receiver out of Texas, and he came out with a five-minute video to release a top twelve. The production quality of that video, though, was actually really impressive. I know? had to, I skipped to the very end. I'm like, I know there's going to be a graphic at the end, and I can just get all the teams, and I just skipped to the end. And, um, yeah, and you just got to roll with it, you know? <laughs> it's, <laughs> you just... it's, it's moments like that where you think about all the money you spent on college. And trust me, I loved college. It was a great time to party, but then you realize, hell, I spent a lot of money to write about top 12s yeah. in July or June or March or May or April, whenever the hell we are. I don't I don't even know what time of year it is. I'm too busy doing slideshows. A coach called me yesterday morning, and we're talk, we talk almost every morning. He goes, Newberg, you, you, sound like, you sound like you got one foot out of this recruiting thing. 
And I said, Coach, I'll be honest with you. I reported on a kid, a slot receiver's top 12 last night. And I'm just not right since. <laughs> I I spent like four hours doing a analytical piece on DeAndre Francois and how he does in crunch time. But the uh, the five minutes I took to transcribe Tim Brewster talking about Cam Akers has like seven times more traffic. So when people tell us they want us to stop doing clickbait and slideshows, you stop clicking on them and we'll stop doing them is kind of how this whole whole, whole thing no, works. But I, think that, I mean, I think that's clearly more interesting not only because he's talking about the most hyped player on campus right now, but also because it's a coach speaking that never gets to speak. So yeah, I think, um, you know, I think in that instance, that's a really valuable piece of content right there, you know, and, yeah. and something that we don't get to do all the time. That's enjoyable to me. I was more frustrated about the Francois story and not, I probably picked a bad example of something that's actually kind of <laughs> real. It's more about the amount of time. Like we got a poll going on right now about Alabama players. That's going to far exceed the, the Francois story too. Just a, just a poll. So anyways, I think we're, I'm kind of grumpy too, but I was trying to hide it, but now Josh is here and that's got me grumpy. So you guys are all up in your feelings. This no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm back. Congratulations for being happy for once, Chris. I'm, I'm happy for you, I guess. Not really. Thanks man. I appreciate it. All right. So I did just look through these questions. Josh is right. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> They're not very good. They're, you know, we didn't give you a whole lot of time to kind of flood them. Poor one guy's first question or first comment on our thread is a question that Josh just kind of shit on. So Let's let's go with Tahada Mitchell because you guys have No 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 time out. We have to ask a question that just hasn't been asked yet. What are they gonna do at quarterback? <laughs> it hasn't it hasn't come up. They did offer a quarterback. You wanna talk about that, Chris? A kid from a three star from Kansas has got the whole message board up in arms right now. Yeah, last night Josh clued me in that he had heard through a contact who works with quarterbacks that FSC was involved with the kid out in Kansas. So I reached out to the young man, got him to contact me back. We traded quite a few messages. I kind of, you know, who did you talk to? Who did you get the offer from? Did you talk to Jimbo? You're committed to Tulsa. Are you still committed? Those kind of things. So I kind of ran down the list with him, got some information, put the update up that we had. There were a couple other comments I left out of it, but basically kids say he's still committed to Tulsa, but he's going to evaluate things. He's picking up a lot of interest. UNC came in just before FSU. There's a couple of SEC schools that are on the verge. I talked to somebody who's seen him in person, they like him a hell of a lot as an athlete. Very high on him. Thought he could definitely play defense as like a safety linebacker hybrid. As a quarterback, they thought he was capable. They were a little surprised FSU was going on him as a quarterback, but they hadn't seen him since last summer. So they didn't know if he had made a big leap from a passing standpoint. Um, Josh knows somebody that has worked with him as a quarterback, so he might be able to comment on him a little bit more as a passer from the feedback he got there. But I think he's going to come in during the summer, potentially, from the conversation we had last night. He's a name to follow. You know, they're dating. They're not getting married, but they're dating. You know, he offers there, but no commitment. But quarterback recruiting is interesting. I mean, we've talked about it plenty, but Have they we? clearly want to add one in this class, so we'll see how it goes. And the, the quarterback we're talking about is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, is it Juice Reuter or Jace Reuter? Jace Reuter. Jace Reuter. Josh, yeah. what, are your, what are your thoughts on him and kind of his uh, what, what your intel has kind of delivered so far? Yeah, like Chris said, I was at the Armwood game last night, and this – guy that I've known for about 10 years that deals with quarterbacks all over the country came up to me and told me that Florida State was talking to this kid, Jace Reuter, and the kid's dad, had con- they'd been in contact, um, this guy that I know, and his dad had been in contact, and uh, he's like, I think that Florida State offer's coming, so I got home from the Armwood game late, and I was like, I had some stuff to do, so I passed it on to Chris, and you know, he looked into it, and the kid said he, uh, he received an offer, which is kind of what I was told. I wasn't told directly that FSU had offered yet, but certainly sounded like it was heading that way so um the guy that told me said georgia and north carolina also went to go see him this week and he's gonna pick up a bunch of offers so this is where it gets funny on the on the message boards because everybody will criticize this and then once you know a couple more teams come in and offer it's like oh okay we're not the only team that that thought he was good and now he is good so it'll come around people will see his film and um if he comes to camp this summer then he's a legitimate target it kind of sounds like he is i think you know this is uh this has been going on for a little bit i think they've been watching him um i think he i think he's generally interested in florida state and wants to take things slow i expect him to be at camp this summer and until then i mean you know he's he's just another name on the board i don't yeah I'm not saying like he's a top target right now. He's just another name on the board. Quarterback recruiting at this stage can best be described as FSU's trying to create as many options that they like to right. a high level 
to get in here during the summer and then try to do a quick closeout. It's going to yeah. be – we're going to walk into June camp, not sure who the hell the quarterback's going to be, and we're probably going to know at the worst by the end of the July camp, I think I said August 10th last time, is like the drop-dead date where we're going to know – It's my birthday. Yeah, that's right. It was your birthday. <laughs> if FSC is going to take a quarterback, which I think they're going to, and who that quarterback's going to be. So, you know, the relationship seems weird now, but we're 75, 80 days out from knowing the answer to all of this. Yeah, not to say that the quarterback recruiting doesn't matter, but until that camp happens, until next month, like, you know. There's just not a lot of answers to be had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if Justin Fields shows up, throws at camp, spends three days at FSU, falls in love with him, commits, and holy shit, Jimbo got him an elite quarterback. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't happen to take Jace from Kansas – who's, you know, Johnny come lately for them in recruiting, and he develops into a great quarterback, then, hey, they got another guy who's a Christian Ponder type, just to throw out a similar ranking type of, you know, guy. So, you know, it's kind of like you don't know till you know, and I can't definitively say FSU's going to get an elite quarterback. I'm not convinced of that. I'm, you know, the only thing I'm really convinced of at this point is it's pretty clear they definitely want they a want quarterback it. in this class. Yeah. I'm just here to watch it. I, I mean, the quarterback recruiting – is just different to, to try to predict under Florida State because there's only one person making the decision. Like, it comes yeah. down to Jimbo Fisher. Um, I'm texting with my guy now that, that introduced me to Jace Reuter. He said last night uh, he heard from Oregon, Alabama, and Texas. Uh, they didn't say anything further about an offer. Uh, it's the second conversation with Bama. So, you know... Florida State maybe is just the first of, of many offers to come in. But as far as to get back on topic, um, I'm just here to follow Florida State quarterback recruiting. I don't think there's many predictions that can be made because Jimbo holds all the cards in this one. And like Brendan said, it's going to happen in a flurry. There's going to be a bunch of kids coming in for camp. Jimbo's going to offer one or two. He's going to go in hard on them, and they will likely have a commitment by the end of summer, at quarterback. Yeah. So. I think I think back to Malik Henry's recruitment. I think back to Jacob Eason's recruitment. Those guys took a lot of summer visits, yeah, and sort of decided on the spot at a school that they were going there. You know, you kind of it's just one of those things where a lot of guys you recruit with five, ten visits. Sometimes with quarterbacks, they do it all in a short span, and you figure it out then and there. It's just so much of this is going to be about optics, I think, with this fan base of like what they're okay with. Like Justin Fields, like everyone's got this this fascination with him, and understandably so. He's a quarterback with all the tools, and the rankings reflect that. If they end up with you know Jace Reuter, then all of a sudden it's it's you know we keep hearing about JJ Cosentino on the message board or you know Sean McGuire. It's like you know Jimbo's track record is definitely better when he gets an elite quarterback. He turns him into an elite college quarterback uh, with Malik Henry being the lone exception that was some other circumstances aside from just his talent on the field um but but even jj and sean's a funny conversation sean was recruited to be a backup and he was a great backup quarterback yeah he, he he was never that guy he was never the superstar he was always a guy not scared of competition who would mm-hmm. make you better in practice who would be capable if he had to play jj's been an effing bust i mean he's mm-hmm. he's awful so I'm not going to sit here and act like that didn't turn out as expected. But Sean McGuire was what Sean McGuire was supposed to be. Yeah, he signed with Jameis Winston. Yeah. Like, yeah. You've you got to get a quarterback that's okay with being second fiddle to sign alongside Jameis Winston that year. I mean, like, and then you have John John Franklin's the guy who signs the year after Jameis, and that's kind of – he was the same thing. Like he was supposed to be a guy that was kind of a project, but you could maybe move him to wide receiver and or quarterback. I honestly feel a bit like – you know, they took his commitment early before they were out of the running for Alex Collins. Mm-hmm. And I kind of get they were They were best friends for people that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, and teammates and best friends. So, John, I kind of felt like the whole time was like they only wanted him with Alex. But he was such a great athlete they and, and a great kid, a great family. And they just, you know, kept him committed because they were probably thinking like, hey, if it doesn't work out at QB, we can play him somewhere else. Obviously, once he got on campus, he wanted to play QB. He almost had a shot at it. And then when it didn't work out, he wasn't open to switching positions. So I don't really feel like John Franklin was brought in to be that guy either. Like He was just kind of just bringing talent on campus. But if, yeah, I mean, John was a guy that could give you the look of a spread option quarterback in practice. I mean, he did the Mariota Oregon work for them. And, and that worked out great. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple fumbles later, not so much. 
But John, Fair. I mean, I remember watching John in high school. We watched him at the USF 7-on-7. Seven seven. I think me and Josh were both there. And I walked out of that thing thinking he was a safety because he was very athletic, had good range, could move, was an aggressive kid. I thought he could live at safety, could maybe play receiver. But I've never viewed him as a quarterback. I mean, he wanted to chase it. They let him chase it. That's why he left FSU. But John wasn't recruited as an elite quarterback. I mean, it, there's a drastic difference between getting quarterback depth and getting a quarterback that you believe in. And, you know, Sean McGuire was quarterback depth. John Franklin was quarterback athlete depth. J.J. was quarterback depth that I think they believed in and it just didn't work out. So I, I think the conversation with guys like that, it's very different. It's not painting with a very broad brush. You have to kind of look at each guy as a singularity. I think the lesson to learn or people need to kind of remember is when it comes to quarterback recruiting, like when Jimbo picks his guy, his guy that he thinks is going to be someone he can build on around, he's typically hit it out of the park. I mean, EJ Manuel, I know had his flaws, but you know, really good college career. Jameis Winston, obviously, you know, and then DeAndre Francois is on a good project projection right now. He's on a good trajectory to end up being a really good college quarterback too. And when they landed EJ, they weren't in a good place. I mean, EJ was a huge piece. That kid recruited his ass off. Mm-hmm. EJ EJ's a huge reason much of the talent he played around came to FSU. He, he was a fantastic recruiter. He was a great kid that could get on the phone and could talk to his peers. And he had a wide spectrum of appeal. He could deal with kids who were very intelligent, the kids that weren't so much but were very athletic, competitive kids. He kind of connected with everybody in a good way. You know, EJ's career here is what it is. It was up and down, but he was a big piece of the turnaround of the program under Jimbo. Okay, folks, here's your your recruiting, uh, your quarterback recruiting talk for the week. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you got your your fix there. Uh, Josh, you mentioned earlier you were at Armwood. Um, was it last night? Yeah. Okay, some big news to come out of Armwood today was Sean Callahan, uh, the longtime coach there at Armwood, resigning. I guess Florida State fans have this, you know, they – Cannot get a cannot get a recruit out of Armwood. It's uh, a curse. It, it, for those who don't know, for those who aren't super privy to it, for those who do know about it and just want to hear the the re- what's up with Florida State Armwood um, and just the kind of that whole the whole history. You, you what? You want me to talk about that? Whoever wants yeah, to talk about it, go for it. Subject. Yeah, Jeez. we're hitting on all of the history. No, yeah, right. <laughs> Florida State and Armwood, you know, Florida State just hasn't offered many Armwood kids. I posed a question on the message board today, you know, who was the last, and, and the, the thing is that Armwood sends them all to Florida. I said, who was the last Armwood kid that went to Florida? And somebody said Alvin Bailey and Matt Jones, and that's that's right. But Florida State never really recruited either of those guys. Eddie Grand passed on Matt Jones. He liked him, just didn't see him as a fit. Um and Alvin Bailey had one of those offers where they offered him during camp. Probably would have taken his commitment that summer, but you know they ended up recruiting others. Alvin Bailey's a five foot ten slot receiver. Um, by the time the season started, you know Florida State had moved on. They didn't even do an in home visit with him. So it's not like it's not that was what twenty thirteen. So they recruited Byron Cower. He went to Auburn. They didn't offer Eric Stryker. He went to Oklahoma. They didn't uh, land Leon McQuay. He went to USC. Um, they didn't offer a lot of, of other players at Armwood. So I don't really see what the big deal is. I know Coach Callahan well. I know his son. I know Evan, the OC. I know a lot of the members of the Armwood staff over there. Uh, it's just not what people want to make it out to be. Um, Warren Thompson, he has, he has no impact by anybody outside of his family. That's what people don't understand, like all these kids. You, you think Leon McQuay's dad would let anybody influence his son's recruitment? Like, are you crazy? You think some of these kids and, and these parents nowadays are going to let a coach determine where a kid goes? Like, you, you're you insane. So it is what it is. It's fun to talk about on the message board and all that, and I'm here for the curse. <laughs> I think Warren Thompson told Sean he was going to FSU, and that's why <laughs> I, th- I think that's what happened. That's just my fan theory. And can I say something that people don't even know right now? Everybody thinks that it's they're so adversarial. Um, Armwood was competing in a track meet upstate, and a couple coaches on the Armwood football staff were in Tallahassee for the track meet. And they came over and, and hung out with the FSU coaching staff and went over some schemes, and you know, it was like a, a coaching session. Um, so, you know, it's not people just don't understand the dynamics of what really goes on. 
And like, I know Sean Callahan a bit. Josh knows him far better than I do. But I spent time around him, especially back in like 2010, 11, 12, when I was doing State Fire job. That man hates recruiting. He doesn't hate FSU. He hates recruiting. You talk to him about anybody about recruiting. You don't want any part of it. Yeah, I mean, the last thing he's going to do is try to throw himself in the middle of a recruitment and have to deal with coaches and kids and parents. Like, with with Cowart's recruitment, I thought he wanted to run into the middle of the highway and get hit by an 18 wheeler. I mean, he just he hates it. It's not his thing. And the whole Callahan thing this morning, we were training some messages, the three of us and Bob. Coaches in the state of Florida get paid crap to coach high school, and the shit they have to put up with is absurd. Terrible, terrible. I guarantee you Cal Henry services at private Christian school in a Texas or a Georgia or somewhere like that in the coming years gets paid and does well. I, I've known too many good coaches in this state at high school ranks who quickly left the state, left winning programs, left successful runs to simply go get more money because it's, it's a bad state to be a high school coach and you're not rewarded very well and you have to shovel so much shit. Yeah, I talked to Callahan. I was over there two weeks ago. And we were hanging out a little bit before practice started, and he told me he was leaving after the season. I'm not sure if that was public knowledge or not. I don't really get too much into like high school transfers and coaching changes and stuff, so I just I didn't say anything. But he absolutely told me that he was going to coach again. Um, he said he might take a year off or something, but he wants to coach again and he wants to get paid for it. I believe a high school coach gets like a $3,500 coaching bonus to coach high school ball and armwood does one of the best jobs of like maintaining an off-season program callahan's there every afternoon um i bet you their attendance for weight room workouts in the off-season is 90 percent. so he's got a full room of kids every afternoon working out in the weight room like he doesn't get paid extra for that he's been doing it for 10 15 years now so i i i completely understand why he wants to go get paid yeah I just didn't expect it to happen this soon. Armwood's one of those places where you deal with kids from a lot of socioeconomic backgrounds. So you're dealing with a lot of things off the field that, you know, don't really come with the the title of football coach. But it's not easy. I mean, I just – I'm never shocked when a coach leaves a public high school in the state of Florida. It just – it doesn't come as a shock to me. It's just – it's truthfully not worth it for most of them. The only thing I there, so there isn't an Armwood curse. I mean, that's kind of the <laughs> no, there definitely is. Okay, all right, cool. So we got that. So so next, we got a couple more questions that came in. I'm going to read the questions and let you They're guys figure out what. Did you see the last one from ten minutes ago? Uh, no, go through them all. We'll, we'll answer. I'll go through them. Well, we can figure out whether you want to actually answer them or not. If not, we'll move on to to Hada Mitchell. No, I want to answer them. All right. Do you guys have a feel for the receivers like Pickney and Turney, Turner? Excuse me. It seems after more Thompson Waddle, they might be targets. Is that correct? Yeah, I think they got a great shot at Pick Pinkney, and I think Turner. Um, they probably need to get him back on campus again. I just feel like they have a better shot with Pickney than Turner right now. Pickney and yeah. Turner. Turner sounds like an old like nineteen nineties buddy cop movie but or something like that. They've been on campus. I mean, they're in good shape with both of them. Yeah, yeah Pickney's been here twice since mm-hmm. February. He came in February, and then he came again for spring practice. And he's a guy that they really like. They identified pretty early. LSU's in there pretty good. I think the Gamecocks are in there pretty good. Um, but, yeah, I think they've got a real good shot at him. With Turner, it's a little bit more. There's a lot of schools in there. I think Virginia Tech and UNC are two schools that are in a real good spot for him, especially the Hokies. But I think FSU's in the discussion. Great, that was that was great, guys. All right, and moving on, Joshua Corbin is he James Cook insurance or a third target? No, he can play multiple spots, but it seems like a true running back. Also, any word on Charles Strong after he looked at Auburn? Yeah, Charles Strong. You guys are terrible. Strong, solid. I mean, he he's looked at other schools. There's some involvement there, but he's an FSU kid. He wants to go to FSU. They had two coaches go by and see him this week on two separate occasions. Jay watched his spring game last night. Um, Randy, who's his area recruiter, came in earlier in the week. Charles, every time I ask him, is pretty adamant that he's solid. And he's not a guy who's really like into recruiting. He, I think he visited Auburn because Auburn has a good run with big backs. I think Kerryon Johnson's a guy who kind of compares to him. So it made some sense for him to look at what they do with that. But I don't think he's truly flirting with others. And uh, with Corbin, I know Josh wants to say it, but I'd say both is the answer for that. I, Corbin's a really good athletic 
football player who can play running back, but he could also potentially play receiver, maybe even somewhere on defense. Uh, he's a talented kid. I, I think sometimes for FSU, when they watch film of a kid, they don't think, oh, he's our fifth best running back. He's exactly. our third best running back. They think, shit, this kid can play football. He's pretty good. He probably can help us in some this way. Is, yes, Chris hit on it. This is where the divide comes, where the message boards um, look at things differently than the coaches do. And the message board wants to fit every square peg into every square hole, whereas like the, the coaching staff does exactly what Chris said. They're, they don't necessarily label it one, two, three, four, five. Can Jay Sean Corbin come in and help us win the ACC and make the playoffs and, and win a national championship? That's kind of what they do. So they see him as a guy that could come in and play running back. If he doesn't play running back, he could play slot. He could play defensive back. Now, he, he's most likely going to come in and play running back. But if James Cook and Charles Strong are on the on the commit list, then he's not. So if, they, if one of those two guys flips, then yes, now all of a sudden he's insurance. So like Chris said, he's both. This is, this but, is, plus, if a kid's talented and wants to go to your school, wants to play for your team, that matters too. And I think Corbin's a kid who legitimately has a great deal of interest in being a Seminole. Mm-hmm. So I think that matters. And to tie you into this, Brendan, who's Jimbo's favorite like off-brand football player? Jonathan Vickers. Exactly. And what is no? Vickers good at? He's Jonathan Vickers. Jimbo loves him some Vickers. Because he's good Vickers at every. He's good at everything. Things very well yep. he's not great at anything but he does a lot of things very well he'll block he can catch he can run it he understands the game he's a good teammate practices really well he's a good student he's in the weight room he checks the boxes he's not a great player he's not going to put up stats he's not going to be the difference maker but he's a good teammate and an excellent player to have on your team i think corbin's a kid that kind of fits into that i think he might be more talented than vickers but i think he's sort of that guy he's a excellent talented role player that's every year I feel like you know, we kind of get into this where you know the stargazing where you just want to load up on these blue chip guys like not all of the four and five star guys can come in and play because it's just, that's not how it works like if you had only consistently five star guys on your so you had an amazing class of, of 15 five star guys and five you know four star guys really like that's just not how it works because you need guys that are program players that are going to fit different roles and do different things it's not about getting the best player it's about getting the right fit so yeah, like a like a program guy like a Jonathan Vickers, who you know wanted to be at Florida State, uh, that you know, grew up in Quincy and played high school ball in Tallahassee. Like that's important. Having a guy like a Sean McGuire, like we alluded to earlier, those are all things that are important. So it's not always a, a black and white. Like yeah, this guy is number three on the list, or he's a top, you know, the top player on the board, or third or fourth best player on the board at this position. Um, this is about talent acquisition right now and getting guys that you feel like can help you out in certain different areas and then using like the assets that you have, which are scholarships to not just get talent, but get guys that are going to fit into different roles because they all can't play and they all can't play right away. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of how I stand on it is you can take a few chances on guys with the idea that they're not going to be a superstar necessarily. I think FSU is very good at utilizing what they have on their roster. Outside of Josh Brown, I can't think of a guy that I feel like they wasted last year with. Like, I feel like Josh Brown's a guy that should have done more. He should have played more, been used more. Outside of him, I can't really point to another player where I'm like, I think they wasted that guy on the roster last season. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I would have liked to see Maven yeah, I mean, Saunders a little more. Keith Gavin. Uh, yeah, Keith, Keith had, that, Keith had injuries, though, too, thing, right? Whole route tree bullshit and, you know, <laughs> feeling comfortable. Jimbo's such a trust guy with those guys. Because if Keith goes out there and runs a slant when he's supposed to run, you know, yeah, that go, and they throw a pick, then Jimbo's going to eviscerate the receiver. Yeah. He's not going to yell at his quarterback. So I, I kind of get that. But, yeah, Keith should probably play more. That's a fair point, yes. Yeah, I think those two. Maven, I would like to see a little bit more of. I thought he uh, looked really good at uh, from what I think Maven drives him nuts. For every good thing yeah. he does, he has a moment. Where he's that's like, every talented wide receiver with him, though. That's yeah. that's Newton Murray. I've been told is he's. It's, it's a matter gotta, of consistency. It's got to come on. The mm-hmm. light bulb has to come on with him. He looks the part. You're you're right. He looks the part. That's for sure. Um. Anyway, so we're going uh, off on a on a tangent here, but I kind of like that. That was fun. Um. The last question. You guys aren't going to want to answer this prediction for next 2018 or 2019 guy to pop. 18, I'd probably go with Mitchell. Yeah, uh, Mitchell or Joshua Moore. Yeah, or 19, I'd go with maybe Gunnell because I expect him to do something possibly in the summer. 
Uh, I'd um, go with maybe like Jalen Curry or uh, Owen Popo or Jay Sean Sheffield or Jalen McCullough. Yeah, that's true. Those Georgia boys are all kind of on the verge. Uh, I feel like Owen keeps going back and forth on if he wants to wait or do it. I know he legitimately considered doing it here in the last couple of weeks. I think it's going to happen. And then he took a step back and said he was going to wait. But, you know, I think every time he steps on a certain campus in Tallahassee, he uh, he kind of has a thought go through his head. Maybe this weekend. Well, a lot of big time, big time names, obviously, and and coming coming down the pipe there. Um, which brings us to Tahada Mitchell. Uh, you guys have been all over this since his I visit. Say Taraja. Is it, yeah, I say Taraja because that sounds more fierce, and as a linebacker, I think he needs to sound more fierce. There's an R in there, but I always thought it was kind of, kind of, kind of. Yeah, but I you're saying Tahada, like Miguel Tahada. Well, is there an R in his name? I don't know. Is there? I don't know. <laughs> no, nah, Miguel Tahada doesn't have an R in there. Tur- okay. Tur- Tarada Mitchell? Taraja. Taraja. Taraja Mitchell. Oh, like you've got a Raja in there. That's kind of yeah. cool. Taraja Mitchell. Okay. Get it up in there. Ah. You, sound, you sound like a dinosaur when you say it like that. <laughs> um, when I played, when I was uh, in high school, I was the linebacker and I was the, the backup middle linebacker, but I would be responsible for calling out the plays. And you guys hear my voice now. I'm very... Uh, Sound like someone from from super bad. Um, you weren't exactly barking them out. Oh no, I would have to bark them out to kind of get their respect. So I'd go blue forty two or something like that, <laughs> and they called me the the pirate linebacker because I sounded <laughs> so I sounded like a pirate. Inevitably, everyone just called me the pirate linebacker. So that was my legacy at Doctor Phillips High School. Um, That's great. <laughs> um, so, anyways, Tarada Mitchell, is that better? Is that fine? Taraja. You know what? You guys go ahead and talk about him. I'm done. <laughs> go ahead. Fine. So, Taraja Mitchell came in. He visited last weekend. When he left, he did an interview with Chris Nee saying that he would make a decision the next two to three weeks. So, yesterday morning, I got a text actually from an Ohio State source. And he told me, hey, I think Taraj is about to announce on May 28th. So, I DM Taraja and I said, are you deciding on May 28th? And he replied, um, no, sir, no later than July, June 4th. And then he went ahead and tweeted that, you know, whatever he tweeted, decisions, decisions, decisions coming soon. Um, so we went back and forth a little bit more. And I just said, is there any significance behind, you know, the June 4th date or, or that time frame? And he said, no. He goes, my mind's not made up, but it will be by then. So I just said, all right, keep me in the loop whenever you set the date and, you know, we can do something. So um, he doesn't exactly know, but as I said in that VIP scoop piece yesterday, I think that as long as he makes his decision within that time frame of the two to three weeks that he had been planning, then I think Florida State uh, remains in good position. And it looks like it's all lining up for the Knowles right now. Yeah, to add to that, I out of the exit interview with him, you know, felt like FSU had put themselves in a really good spot. He wanted to learn a lot about life after graduation, support for football players. I think FSU knocked it out of park in those regards. I know they did a really good job of the life program, L-Y-F-E, that they do that kind of explain that to guys. And I know current players are very high on that, so I don't think it's something you have to work too hard to sell. I think it sells itself pretty well. They offered two of his teammates. Uh, they offered a buddy of his while he was here during the visit. He loves Odell. I think his well, best those teammates, though, those, that's I believe that's Levante Taylor's little brother. Yeah, they, one one is his brother and one is his cousin. I think right. it's like a legit cousin type of thing, not a yeah. You know, they they were at cousin. the spring game in Orlando when Taraja came, and because I I met um, Levante's dad because I'd been dealing with him a lot, and I finally was able to meet him in person after the spring game, and of course Taraja was there, who was already on our radar. But Levante's little brother and cousin were also there. And this is back in 2016, and they were 2020 recruits. So they were, like, eighth graders when I met them. And he had just told me, like, you know, these two are going to be dudes, and here they are. And, and I've watched some of uh, – is his little brother's name Keontae? Keontae? Yeah, Keontae. He can play. He can play, man. He's good. So I don't think they were just, like, throwing offers at all Taraja's friends. I mean, I just want no, context but I just, on that. They're actually, I think there was some theory to doing it then and there. I think sure. there's some for showmanship. Yeah, to say, absolutely. You know, I agree with you. I think those guys stand on their own just fine. And if FSU doesn't get Mitchell, I think they would still recruit those guys to the end. But I think there's a matter of, hey, you know, 
this Virginia pipeline that you're part of, it's not ending with you. You know, it started long ago and it's going to continue after you. We want you to be a part of it. But uh, yeah, all in all, I think the sooner the better for FSU with him committing. And I think it's going to be FSU. I don't think it's a hundred percent sure thing done, but I think he left the staff here thinking it was them when he departed his visit. And I don't think it was just the normal. Thanks coach. I appreciate it. I love it here. I think I can see myself here. I think it was a little more stronger message than simply that. A lot of great information on uh, T Mitchell. Very, very, very impressive stuff, guys. All right. So that, that round wraps it up, huh? I'm done with, with this podcast today. Is there any more questions? <laughs> I'm here for the people. I'm like you guys. I'm in a good mood now. Chris got me in a good mood. Uh, that's uh, thanks, Josh. Yeah, I come on the podcast in a bad mood. All I need to do is talk some recruiting with Chris, and I'm back. I'm in a terrible I'm, mood I'm, now. I'm I'm over the Jalen Waddle top twelve. Chris has me in a good mood heading into the weekend. Uh, Overshone put out a top fifteen. How did I that saw be? you didn't report on it. You just put it on the message. Yeah, I, I can't bolt. Once you get over twelve, I just can't bolt it. There's a little bit of my soul left. And I, I saw that man. I was dying laughing. I'm like, oh, he couldn't report on a top fifteen. He had to just put it on the message board. If the kid had visited before, I might have bolted right. it. But in fact, he hasn't visited yet. You know, I'm gonna hold off. Seems so I'm arbitrary. Like, like you the... didn't tell me to bolt it. I might have lost it. <laughs> I lost it. I sent it to you, take the Microsoft Surface, and just throw it across the room. <laughs> okay. All right, All right Jets. Have a good weekend. Everybody have fun. Be safe. I love you guys. Bye.